good afternoon. I want to welcome everyone to today's luncheon. Uh, I am Mark Calabri, Director of Financial Regulation Studies at the Cato Institute, uh, and I will also, also be serving as a moderator today's forum. Uh, the recent multi-billion dollar losses at J.P. Morgan have renewed the unsettled debates surrounding both the need for the Dodd-Frank Act as well as its effectiveness. Defenders of Dodd-Frank argue that J.P. Morgan's losses prove the value of Dodd-Frank, while its detractors argue that the act is either grossly insufficient or even misguided. Last week, one of the architects of Dodd-Frank, former Treasury official Michael Barr, wrote in Politico that J.P. Morgan's losses clearly prove that, quote, opponents of financial reform are wrong, unquote. What Professor Barr and other Dodd-Frank apologists ignore is that the substance, that is the quality of reform, is far more important than its quantity. Today's speaker, Kevin Villani, will argue for reform of our financial and mortgage systems. Contra Dodd-Frank, however, the reforms offered this afternoon will be derived by an actual analysis of the weaknesses in our financial system. Weaknesses that not have only been ignored by Dodd-Frank, but in many instances have actually been made worse. Any reform of our financial system will only be as good as the assumptions from which it begins. Today, we will examine the assumptions both behind Dodd-Frank and behind the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission. After finding those assumptions wanting, our speaker will offer his own observations on what exactly caused the failures in our financial system uh, and what made these failures systemic. Our speaker, Kevin Villani, is uniquely qualified to offer such an analysis. In the early 1980s, he served as the first chief economist at mortgage giant Freddie Mac, as well as serving as Freddie Mac's chief financial officer. Prior to his work at Freddie Mac, Kevin served as Deputy Assistant Secretary and Chief Economist for the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development. In addition to both his government and private sector experience, Kevin has held a variety of teaching positions, including positions at the University of Southern California. He has also held adjunct positions at the University of Pennsylvania, Northwestern University, George Washington University, Purdue, and George Mason University. Uh, certainly gets around the academic circle quite a bit. Uh, Dr. Villani has been instrumental in the development and an introduction of many of the innovative financial instruments currently in use in domestic and international capital markets. He has written or co-authored approximately 100 books and articles and has edited several academic journals. Kevin has a BS in mathematics from the University of Massachusetts at Amherst and a PhD in economics and finance from Purdue. Perhaps more importantly than any of those accomplishments, at least in my view, Kevin is also the author with Pat Hendershot of two recent Cato policy papers. The most recent paper is titled, What Made the Financial Crisis Systemic, while his earlier paper is titled, The Subprime Lending Debacle, Competitive Private Markets are the Solution, Not the Problem. Both of these papers can be found online at www.cato.org. Uh, so I want to thank you, our audience, and I also want to welcome Kevin to the podium. Thank you very much, Mark. Um, I, I, I want to thank you all for coming, and I want to thank Mark for setting this up. Uh, as a third-generation Milton Friedman student, I was taught to believe that there was no such thing as a free lunch, but I can see here in Washington the rules don't apply. The, the topic today, uh, what made the financial crisis systemic, is quite ambitious for a lunchtime seminar. Uh, there's been hundreds of books and thousands of academic papers, so, and there's hundreds of stories out there. But we're going to try to keep it fairly simple, discuss two stories. One is the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission report that was published in uh, January of last year, and then the one single dissent by um, Commissioner uh, Peter Wallison. 
Now, the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission spent tens of millions of dollars. They had 100 staff. Uh, they took testimony from 700 people. They had a millions of pages of testimony, and they produced a report on what caused it. And um, basically, it was they were charged to study 22 specific causes. They found evidence of all sorts of causes, a confluence of, of failures, mostly related to private label securitization. And the one thing that they exonerated were the political housing goals. And of course, they exonerated, uh, or they found that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were um, led into this market by the private label market. The, uh, the Wallison diagnosis is diametrically opposed to the, that of the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission. That is, nothing else counted. It was the sine qua non, uh, if you remember your days uh, in Latin, without which nothing, that the entire crisis related to the existence of housing policy. And of course, since Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were the implementers of that policy, they led the way. Um, and HUD, as their mission regulator and as their prudential regulator, also extended those housing goals to uh, others in the market, including, including the private label. And so everything else would be a symptom of what happened when, uh, that, when that happened. So in some sense, the, the, the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission was set up to emulate the PCORA Commission. Now, the PCORA Commission was established during the Great Depression, and purportedly the idea was that it would investigate the causes of the, of the financial crisis in the Great Depression. But in fact, it was a report to implement a longstanding agenda um, which related uh, the implementation of Glass-Steagall, which brought us deposit insurance and brought us the separation of commercial banking from investment banking, even though the evidence suggested that that had nothing to do with the Depression at that time. And I will argue that that sowed the seeds of the current crisis. So under the Wallison description, if you understand how the housing goals work, then uh, nothing else matters. And I just reread that report. My discussion today is basically going to agree with the Wallison dissent. I agree with one point in the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission report, and that is that the prudential regulation failed pervasively. And I'd even add to that, there's a new book out by uh, Barth, Caprio, and Levine, The Guardians of Finance. It's failed chronically in doing that. Um, so the one thing we have to understand, if those two things alone could cause the financial crisis to be systemic, then that's all we need to explain it. And everything else will be a symptom of what happens when you get a crisis that bad. Now, it all starts then with the housing goals. What are the housing goals? Um, the housing goals were, were in the original 68 Act. Uh, they were uh, implemented first in the 1970s. But um, Fannie Mae wanted no part of those housing goals, and I can remember the arguments we had with them at that time, to try to convince them that they weren't binding anyway, that, that whatever they did, they already met the housing goals. But they were looking ahead, and in 1992, we passed the ironically named Federal Housing Enterprise Safety and Soundness Act, which was more about implementing housing goals than it was about making these organizations more safe and sound. And the whole idea was that these goals would eventually become more binding um, with, with lending quotas to lower income households that would eventually reach 50 to 70 percent. Uh, the second thing that we did in 1994 was we put a formal 
uh, requirement that they target an increase in the home ownership rate from 65% to 70%. That seems very modest, um, but the U.S. at this time already had the most liberal lending requirements among any of the market economies. So the question was, how are they going to be able to get there? And this I stole from Mark uh, when he was in Italy. Um, but it's just a basic graph, even though Fannie and Freddie always said their goal or their role in the world was to promote home ownership, uh, they really never did, if I can get this button. You see, the home ownership rate was stuck at about 65% going back to the early 70s when Fannie and Freddie were down to zero, and they grew their market share to 50%, and the home ownership rate stuck at 65 So it wasn't at all clear how the home ownership rate was going to get to 70 um, So the question is, how does Fannie and Freddie subsidize borrowers so that we can increase the home ownership rate to um, 70% in to make loans more affordable for low-income borrowers. There's a, uh, this is the only theory I'll give you, there's the Modigliani and Miller Irrelevance Theorem. It came out in the 1950s and it says something very simple. It says for any firm, for any bank, for any finance company, uh, for any pool of mortgages, your total funding cost uh, is the same regardless of how you decide to fund it, debt, equity, anything else. Makes perfect sense. And the more the risk the more the, the higher your funding cost is going to be to fund that risk. Now, the well-known exception to that, which turns out to be fundamental for understanding the mortgage markets and mortgage securitization, was tax. That is, debt is deductible and equity returns uh, aren't deductible, so there's a big difference in cost. The second biggest exception is that um, with agency status, no matter how little equity you have or how, low, uh, how much loan risk you have, your debt costs aren't going to go up. So the key to their funding is they can fund an unlimited amount at basically the government's cost of funds, no matter how risky they get or how little capital they have. And this is what's supposed to generate the money that's going to fund the subsidies. This gives rise to what the Wall Street Journal called uh, the public risk for private profit model. And essentially, um, you're providing subsidies through finance. Now, uh, politicians love this because there's nothing on the budget that they have to justify. And uh, private firms are exempt from uh, political contributions, so it works in both ways. Um, one of the commission staffers, Tom Stanton, wrote papers on this 20 years ago that said, this is not uncommon. This is basically what a monopoly charter of the, of the king did for the previous thousand years. You give a monopoly charter, and uh, they're going to favor certain uh, entities. So what Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac did basically for the three decades from the 1970s, 80s, and 90s is leverage a lot. About 100 to 1, we can go into the details. And that leverage, according to my calculations, generated about $10 billion a year in tax savings and $10 billion a year in financing cost savings. And that money was sort of split. The borrowers got a better deal, 25 to 50 basis points. They probably got about half the subsidy. And the other half went to uh, shareholders and, and management and uh, back to uh, Congress. Now, the key thing about all of this is, um, it worked well, but you can only leverage to infinity. You can only drive capital to zero. So the magnitude of subsidies that you can derive by giving them a capital advantage is going to be limited. And the 70% home ownership rate we implied a fairly big expansion of the market from where it had been at 65%. And because they had loan limits and because they had affordable housing requirements, it meant that they were going to have to expand the market going down market to subsidize lower income households. Um, so basically, by the year 2000, uh, we had the financial institutions leveraged 100 to 1. 
Um, we had the borrowers putting very little down, so they were leveraged a lot. And it turns out the only ones with capital in the mortgage system were the private mortgage insurers. And you can see uh, none of this had had much impact on the home ownership rate. So it still wasn't clear how we were going to get this home ownership rate up. Uh, so there's a lot of papers, and I, and I see uh, Peter Wallison is here, and thank you very much for coming. And he's written most of these papers. There's a ton of data about the quality of the mortgages uh, when we get to the year 2000. Now, the previous decade, this all worked pretty well. Fannie Mae's stock price quadrupled from 1990 to the, to the year 2000. Um, but by the year 2000, we had already been in a housing boom for about three years, and the pool of, of uh, potential borrowers was a lot weaker. And I only want to point out two elements of their characteristics. One, the down payment requirements had basically been replaced because uh, these purchase money second mortgages could, be, could, could bypass the private mortgage insurers. And they could be funded in the capital markets, or Fannie Mae itself was buying purchase money seconds. So we no longer had the borrower with any stake in the game. The second thing I'll point out is a lot of these loans had teaser rates, which means they didn't even have to pay the full monthly payment, and the, they didn't have to have enough income to qualify, and they could refinance after the teaser rate was supposed to go to the fully indexed rate. So the borrowers worked only so long as house prices continued to rise. And they didn't care what they paid for the house price because they were putting no equity into it. Um, so what that essentially leads to is a go-for-broke model. That is, these were loans that people should have known to be risky on the front end, just looking at the, at the characters to the borrowers with, with high leverage. And we know at the back end, with the benefit of hindsight, that they lost money. This was a, this was a period, the first five years of the last decade, of relatively low profits, and the losses that they took subsequently actually offset all of those profits. So it was a losing proposition right from day one, January 1, 2000, in my view, and for reasons that I think were predictable. Um, and that's because they were funding uh, high-risk, low-return mortgages with that pool, which was something that was very much different than their success story for the previous three decades. So what was on their mind is not, we, we can't clearly know. They were either excessively optimistic, some say they were, or they were pushed by their housing goals, um, or they didn't care if they took a lot, losses, a lot of losses later because that, that came later. But the private label securitization system did the same thing. They were making loans, and these loans didn't have enough yield to compensate for the risk. And when we look back in retrospect, we know that the triple B securities that they issued during this five-year period lost about 30% of their value due to default. So this was a bad bet as well. So you have to ask yourself, why were so-called private label securitizers also willing and able to make a bad bet for five years? Uh, now, I actually found this graph on the internet and then realized that it was in the, in the Wallace descent. They say a picture is worth a thousand words. This one could be worth 10,000 words. Um, and this is just the plot of uh, house prices on a, uh, against a scale of 100. And you can see that the uh, biggest peaks had been at about 125 from 110. So for example, in the, in the 1990s, I had a real estate development business building oceanfront homes in La Jolla. Um, didn't go very well, but uh, I had the same attorney as, as Mitt Romney. And I closed it down. And in 1999, my contractor came back to me and said, let's get started up again. And I said, look, I said, it's 1999, it takes two years to get a permit, 
by uh, the time we have a house built, it'll be three years. By the year 2002, we'll already be on the downside of this market, which we would have been if we had followed historical trends. There had never been a bubble bigger than that. So, of course, I was wrong. But the question is, why did the bubble grow first to five times and then to ten times the size of the biggest bubble in history? And if you can understand this, then you know everything you need to know about the subprime crisis. And so what happened was, in 2005, they continued to, to go. Now, the losses um, and that, in, that ensued were much deeper. That is, by 2007, we know that that cohort of loans, uh, the net loss on the entire pool is about 60%, and it's still growing. You can't tell me that people thought they were good loans when they made them, and almost everybody defaults, and there's almost no equity when they do. And this is where I say they may have been going for broke, the moral hazard of taking a high-risk strategy in the early years, but they were going broke in these years. That is, you know the business is underwater. You just know, know that nobody's called you on it yet. They haven't, they haven't um, made you declare bankruptcy, and so you take all the cash out of it that you can until somebody finally closes you down. And um, for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, I, I have a, a brief anecdote. Uh, back in the, in the 70s when I was at HUD, I was supposed to be the prudential regulator. But, of course, that was only supposed to be 1% one, 1 of my time. It was like uh, with one eye shut. They really weren't going to be serious with prudential regulation. They had a lot of people that were involved with making Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac get housing goals. So, so it basically amounted to me making one telephone call a year to the CEO, David Maxwell. It went something like this. You know, David, how are you doing today? So we're doing great over here. It's fantastic. I said, well, David, as I look at your books, you're about... $10 billion underwater. He says, yeah, but who cares? We can issue all the debt we want. Our debt costs haven't, haven't risen. We can compete with anybody in the market. You know, we can drive the savings loan out of business. What difference does it make? I said, David, how many financial analysts and economists do you have down in that shop? He says, oh, I think there's one guy down there, you know, writing newsletters. I said, how about legislative affairs and people, you know, in charge of the care and feeding of HUD? He says, oh, my God, there must be 50, 75. He says, I don't know. They're growing like crazy. So that tells you what you really needed to know about these entities. They didn't face a bankruptcy constraint. So why, and this is the, this is the end of my story, and then I'm going to explain how it happened. But why it happened, uh, why did the uh, financial crisis become systemic? Well, even through all this period, never reached the, the homeownership goal. Got up close to it, I think about 69%, never reached the 70%. There was a new criteria that was imposed in addition to all of the other um, uh, affordable housing goals, the mission regulators said, well, you've got to maintain at least a 50% market share against the so-called private label securitization. Okay, um, so Fannie Mae and, and Freddie Mac were um, cooperating with the PLS. They funded almost half of it, and they did this to meet the housing goals because those securities counted for the housing goals. At the same time, they were competing with them for market share because they were required by their regulators to do it. So when the private, I call them PLSs, when the private label securitizers, the PLSs went for broke in the first half of the decade, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac went for broke in competition with them. When they went broke in the next three years, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac went broke, okay? Now, I only have one slide left on, on um, Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, and then we're going to talk about how that private label securitization market worked. The, had there been no private label securitization market, 
Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac still could have caused a systemic crisis because they had no way of generating capital subsidies to get the home ownership rate up to 70%. Now, it's possible that politicians would have relieved them of that goal and just ignored it. With the private label securitization uh, going over the, the cliff, the, the, the market share mandate was going to force them to do this. Now, there's been a lot of uh, defenses that have since been offered for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. One is that they uh, followed and were led. Now, when I tried that excuse with my mother, she said, what did you do? And I said, well, everybody else was doing it, so we did it. That excuse didn't work very well. But she said, well, if everybody was jumping over a cliff to their death, you know, would you jump over a cliff to your death? I said, no. But Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac weren't followers. They were actually leaders in this whole effort, except for one period in, in 2004 when prudential regulation actually did, for the only time, Trump mission regulation, and it did so precisely because they had had uh, what I think were the two biggest gap financial scandals in the history, and so the financial regulator put, put a capital requirement on it. As soon as that was removed, they then uh, again led the way. Now, the second defense was from the mission regulator was, well, okay, you know, so I pushed them over the cliff, but they would have done it anyway because I had them convinced that there were tremendous profits to be made in this market. I haven't found evidence of the profits, but that was the notion that they really believed that there were profits there. I say it was a suicide mission. They were more likely to find seven, 70 virgins in that suicide mission than they were to find profits for the loans that they were making when we're talking about 2006 to 2007. So um, I, I, the, the excuses really don't wash. Now the much tougher question is, why did private label securitizers and how could they survive for eight years in what we now know to be a loss-making business for day one? And um, the unanswered questions then are, why didn't the regulators stop them? How could they achieve comparable leverage to Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac to compete when we know that was set by the government? Um, why didn't the smart at-risk investors stop buying the securities? If the smart guys stop buying, then you can't fund and the market will be shut down. How could everybody for eight years make upfront book and cash profits in a money losing operation before it closes down? And why didn't the speculators stop them? Now, if you can answer those five questions, you'll know why the PLS was allowed to go on for so long. And the short answers are it had nothing to do with market discipline and market failure because there, were no, there was no market discipline. Markets had been re replaced by regulation across the board. You either have one or your other, and then we had bad regulation in each case. The affordable housing goals really um, uh, trumped prudential regulation, and the regulators didn't stop them from making bad loans. And then I'll show why and how the SEC and bank regulation arbitrage provided similar uh, leverage to these private label securitizers as Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were able to achieve. Um, the smart money was replaced by dumb money in state and local governments. It was a small part. And then it was the regulatory accounting that allowed them to book fake profits, that forced them to book fake profits, that kept this whole model al alive. Um, and uh, in the end, you can't short the government, which was what was driving the, the house, price, uh, house prices up for that whole period of time. So basically what I'm going to give you now are really the confessions of somebody who was a former Hutter, a former Freddie Macker, but mostly a former uh, private label securitizer. Um, how are the private label uh, securitizers' capital requirements set? Anybody know? The Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission didn't tell you. You can go through 660 pages. They don't know because they're very opaque. 
And one of the reasons they're opaque is private label securitization wasn't created. It was created for Ginnie Mae, which is a government agency. And, and Ginnie Mae didn't need capital requirements. The government backed it. Um, so uh, other countries just use debt and equity, where the capital requirements are much more straightforward. The primary legal distinction is that um, other types of funding are financings, and the, the securitization was an asset sale from day one. Now, um, I, I know I'm out of time, so I'll do this very briefly. Remember I told you about that tax problem, that equity was taxed? Well, the whole reason they created the Ginnie Mae security was because they needed a, a, a vehicle. Ginnie Mae was, was um, exempt from all state laws and regulations that would allow it and nobody else to bypass those laws and create a national market for the trading of the securities. But they weren't exempt from the IRS. And the IRS said, we're going to tax all those cash flows to a mortgage pool before they distribute it. And the only way they could get around that was they got an opinion that they could, if they had a passive trust, they could pass it all through. So they created what investors said was the worst possible instrument of all time. 360 monthly cash flows, and you didn't even know how much interest in principle was coming. It's not what investors wanted to buy. Um, now, the origins of private label securitization, uh, during the 1970s, early 1980s, um, we were working on uh, REMIC legislation, which would allow the private issuers to do exactly what the public was doing, that is, avoid tax and also manage the cash flows in any way that they wanted. And I see Ann Doherty, I remember her reviewed that whole uh, REMIC legislation. So we have a lot of guilty people here that I see. Um, then I moved to uh, Freddie Mac, where we were also exempt for the rules. And we did the first uh, mortgage security that was um, tranched, that, that had different tranches for different investors. It was interest rate tranche. But it violated the um, Modigliani-Miller rule because we took the same cash flows and I made $10 million in profits because investors were willing to pay more. When I went to uh, Imperial, did a, a mortgage-backed bond. I'll just briefly describe it. I had this pool of underwater mortgages. So I did a financing that was uh, uh, financing for gap, but it was a sale for tax because I wanted to accelerate the tax loss and be able to write that off in my books. And it was cheaper financing than deposits. Now, why might you ask? Well, because I over collateralized it. But Modigliani and Miller says, well, if you're over collateralizing one thing, you should be under collateralizing something else. The price should go up. It didn't because I was under collateralizing deposits, and that's where the regulatory arbitrage comes from. So. I took that to Michael Milken, and I said, you know all those junk bonds you sold us? We had a lot of them. I said, I'm going to turn them into AAA securities. He was a little bit apprehensive at the time, but we did the first um, uh, collateralized bond obligation, which did exactly that. And we'll see later that th this, these techniques are what the investment bankers used in this last crisis. Um, then we did the first uh, asset-backed cl uh, collateralized loan obligation. All these things would later be called CDOs. But the, the key to the, the last one was we did the first cash flow bond. Before that, the rating agencies had required you to post collateral in market to market. This was the first one in which they rated the bonds and said the cash flow from the underlying mortgages has to be able to be sufficient to cover the uh, interest on the debt. And that's the way all of the securitizations were done after that. Then, in the 1980s, we had the Basel risk requirements. Now, um, the Having deposit insurance lowered your capital requirement from what had been historically a market rate of 16% down to 8 And that's what Bob Van Order, as he here, always called uh, banks have a dueling charter with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. But regulatory arbitrage cut it from 8 to 4 because they had a 4% capital requirement for whole loans. And beyond that, if you securitized it, you could get the same cash flows down to only 2% capital. 
Now, with your debt costs not going up, if you increase your, your, your leverage eightfold, then you increase your return on equity eightfold. Or, you're magnifying everything with leverage. If you lose money, you're going to lose eight times as much money instead of making eight times as much money. So the regulatory arbitrage was all there in the 1980s. We just took it to new heights in, in later years. So basically the lessons from the 1980s private label securitization was it was exactly the same thing as Freddie Mac and Fannie Mae. You could issue all the debt you wanted, no matter how risky the loans were, or no matter how much capital you had, because you were using another form of the, of the agency status that they had, backed by deposit insurance with that leverage, and your, your loan rates weren't going up. So um, to get to the first subprime uh, debacle, the, the REMIC legislation was passed, and that provided more opportunities for um, regulatory arbitrage. Basically, uh, what was allowed was multi-class securities. There were a million ways to do this, but you were tranching by credit risk. And the simplest one you can think of is having a senior security, the AA, AAA, a mezzanine security, and then everything below investment grade we'll call equity or retained interest. And um, the, they were doing it with subprime loans, but interestingly, these subprime loans weren't eligible for finance by Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac because they had bad borrowers, but they supposedly had a, a lot of equity in the house. So um, my first day on the job, I'm meeting the, the uh, CEO of the bank subsidiary. I'm the CFO of the holding company, and they're bragging about uh, the profitability of these securitizations. And I look at it, and I say, well, you know, okay, it's really profitable, but where did the mortgages go? I just looked at your balance sheet. The mortgages are gone. Who owns them? And he said, oh, well, the investment banker bought the retained interests from me on the day that the deal closed. I said, well, um, how could he pay you enough to buy them? I know that those things aren't worth very much. So no, we promised to buy them back the very next day at the same price. I said, well, the good news is, I said, the bad news is that that's called parking, and that's what uh, Michael Milken went to jail for. The good news is that his cell is now empty, and I hear it's a very attractive cell. But when the books close at the end of the year, they will come and, and get you. So then my job was immediately to get that junk off of his balance sheet by the end of the year. Believe me, I was in New Year's Eve until 10 o'clock at night trying to close a deal because I couldn't sell it without taking a huge hit. I had to spin out a publicly traded REIT, traded on the New York Stock Exchange, which I retained the management rights to, it was sponsored. This is another technique that the investment bankers used. And I could park it in a friendly place with a wink and a nod, say, don't worry, I'll, uh, you'll take losses, but I'll make it up to you later. Um, so. The reason that the regulators had done this is there was a Chicago savings loan doing this high-risk uh, subprime lending, and they were doing double leverage. That is, they'd retain the residuals, and then the residuals would be levered 10 to 1. And by the time you do this, you can get the leverage ratios up to about 1,000 to 1, which is good if they're good loans and you're making money, but on subprime loans, it magnifies the losses. And the regulators stopped it, but like everything else, they had a loophole that said, well, if they're purchased interest, that tax, that regulatory capital doesn't apply, so the investment bankers figured, well, we'll buy them and sell them and we'll turn re retained interest into uh, purchased interest. So what happened was there was no point anymore of keeping these loans on the books. The regulators hated them on the books because they were lousy loans and they would have made you reserve if you left them there. So we spun out the finance company, traded, uh, traded it as a finance company on the New York Stock Exchange. 
um, we put the ownership, we, we created charities and the lawyers and the accountants created a sliver of ownership that was so small that it was worthless. We took a loss on the, uh, for tax purposes for a contribution to a charity and that's where the assets went. So they disappeared from anybody's books. The finance companies held uh, they retained the subordinated interest and then they funded the senior interest and you could fund the senior interest everywhere because I already told you banks could buy this with only 1.6 percent capital. But even in the 1990s banks had what they called structured investment vehicles which allowed them even more leverage. That was like 1 percent capital. And this all started because uh, everybody, economists, politicians, in the 1970s said that uh, GSE securities were liquid. Well, the commercial paper's 30 days. GSE securities were 30 years. They're marketable, but marketability is ephemeral. They're not liquid. So the whole structure of these SIVs was extremely um, uh, fragile because they're issuing 30-day commercial paper, and basically they had to put back to the bank. All it was was another form of regulatory arbitrage that got the capital requirements down below 1% to fund these pools of mortgages. Um, so then, Funding the subordinated interest was all you really had to do uh, left. And you could go uh, to, the, to the junk bond market and to the stock market. You had to do this continuously, every three months, because each time you do a securitization, you're reporting profits, but you're not, you're not getting any cash out. And so you could only go to the market, the junk bond market and the stock market, if you had book profits. Now, where did the book profits come from? Well, these retained interests were hypothetical cash flows. That is, if everything went right, then five to ten years down the road, we're going to see some cash back. And the SEC did two things. They said, well, you can present value those earnings to report the profits now. And, of course, you're postponing the losses because you don't have to take loan loss reserves against the bad assets because nobody knows where the assets are. And they did another thing. They said, uh, we want you to discount those cash flows at 8%, which was virtually a risk-free rate at the time. So all the profits came from SEC accounting. And when I used the market rate, the market rate on those securities for the retained interest was 35%. When you use that, the profits disappeared. Then I had my finance guys run models of cumulative default loss, and they said, everything's going to default from day one. They've never had a good security that's not going to go into default. I said, well, you know, how can they keep on generating these profits? I had to book the consolidated earnings on my books, and a CFO, I didn't want any part of that, but I was forced to by the regulators. So the one thing I could do was get my board to sell the stock. I said, this, the shorts are going to be out there and bring the stock down. It's going to crash. And they agreed with me month after month for almost three years. And they got madder and madder because the stock just kept on going up in price. And they were missing a bull market. And they couldn't believe why I was selling. So finally, I'm having a drink with my largest investor. And uh, I say, well, Look, just tell me off the record. You're my biggest investor buying my stock, and you know I'm selling this stock of this New York Stock Exchange company, and every time I sell, you buy. What is it that you know that I don't know? And he said, well, I know that I get a management bonus every year based on my, my performance, and I've been getting bonuses based on riding a bull market, and you haven't because your, your board hates you and my investors love me. I said, yes, but have you looked at the value of those residuals very closely? I figured he hadn't. He said, oh, let me introduce you to Dimitri, my Russian physicist. Dimitri then explains models of cash flow, credit loss that, you know, blew our models away. I said, well, Dimitri, what's the bottom line here? He says, oh, they've been losing money since day one. They're going to default on all the securities. 
<laughs> I said, well, if you know this, why are you buying? And he said, well, I'm still making my bonus. We'll dump it all after the year end. This is a good game. And the shorts can't short because I'm just bigger than they are. I have more buying power than they do selling or shorting power. So they didn't make it to year end because what happened? Russia defaulted. When Russia defaulted, the securitization markets froze up. When the securitization markets froze up, we didn't have enough cash to keep this company going. The shareholders started selling the stock. The bondholders stopped funding the company. And within about three months, every single publicly traded subprime finance company declared bankruptcy. And the investors, of course, blamed the Russians. They said, well, nobody could see this coming. And the SEC hired Goldman Sachs to mark down the value of the assets. They marked the residuals down to, to zero, and they marked the securities down to about 50%. Is this starting to sound familiar yet? And then, and then they hired all these lawyers to come and sue me and say, well, how could you book these earnings? And I had to explain to them, uh, your guys made me. So what was different from what was already happening when we get to the year 2000, well, the borrowers were much worse. I've already shown you the evidence of that. The regulatory arbitrage that I'll show you what they were doing, that's much worse. Uh, the investor distortions were much worse. The credit losses were much greater. But the profits that everybody could generate were bigger than they ever were in that previous generation. And they were cash profits. And Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac joined the party. So um, there's, there's a lot different, not a lot the same. For the senior investors, the... Um, there was a huge global shortage of senior securities, AAA and AA, based on regulatory-driven uh, demand. They, they said everybody should be buying AA and AAA. So the investment bankers did exactly what I did with Michael Milken in the 80s. They said, well, let's take the junk, we'll take the mezzanine triple B, and we'll make it <laughs> into AAA. It's an easy thing to do. You just over-collateralize. They were basically taking the mezzanine piece, which got thinner. The equity strips had to get a little bigger, but I'm talking about they went from two-thirds of a percent only up to two percent. They were relatively uh, uh, tiny and not enough to stop anybody. And everything got, that got funded. So that everything was getting put into to CDOs during this period. We got up to about 80 percent of the PLS being uh, put into C CDOs. And Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac are funding about half of the AAA, AA senior PLS because it, they meet the housing goals. Um, now, the hedge funds. This is a long story that I don't think has been told. I can't say too much, but this is the dumb money story. Hedge funds get a management incentive fee that says, I keep 25% of the upside over and above a risk-free rate, and I don't pay back the downside when I have a losing year, just like the manager I was telling you about, but it's much worse. State and local retirement funds, their advisors had a similar upside incentive and no downside risk, and um, even the pensioners would get an ex many pensioners in state and local retirement funds would get an extra year pension benefit if the performance was good. And on the downside, the taxpayers guaranteed it. So they had a go for broke mentality. And in fact, if you think about it, almost every state and local government retirement fund in the country assumes they're going to earn 8% real adjusted. The market rate on that, treasury tips, was only two. So somehow they think they're going to make uh, three times what the market rate is, four times, and they never do. So, the, so this money is pouring into the hedge funds. They've got to spend it somehow. Wall Street expands vertically. That is, they see the hedge fund business as being a good business to manage, so they start sponsoring hedge funds. Then the SEC comes along, and they say, uh, investment banks can leverage at twice what commercial banks were, 40 to 1, and that's not even counting their off-balance sheet things. So the investment banks um, started to buy up the loans and buy up the lenders because now they can put the, the, the securities that they don't sell right on their balance sheet. 
this whole uh, stuff about the proprietary trading accounts really had nothing to do with that. They were doing what I did in the 80s, they had to, 90s, they had to park these hard to sell assets someplace, the retained interest and even the mezzanine. And um, who determined the price? Well, the SEC says, well, we'll leave that up to the traders. So the traders could book what I would say were virtually worthless assets, and they book them at par, and then they book uh, huge yields on them that they haven't earned, and then they get multi-million dollar bonuses every year. Like $10 million a year was not a, a big deal for traders, but nobody's made any money yet. The commercial banks provided all the leverage. That is, they were doing an on-balance sheet and off-balance sheet for the AAA, uh, AA securities. They also leveraged up the mezzanine and the, and the junior pieces at the investment banks. So uh, everything is highly leveraged. Um, shadow banks got a lot of attention in the Financial Crisis Inquiry Commission report. They did nothing wrong. They were just victims of, uh, they weren't regulated, but they bought commercial paper. All the issuers of commercial paper were regulated, but they were issuing way too much based on the same regulatory arbitrage story that I'm talking about. Um, so there's huge cash profits all through this period, even though, as we've said, we know the loans are bad. And we can see how everybody could make cash profits, but the only one I'll highlight is these excess spread securities. That was created because you had a, a very low yield on the AAA, driven in part by Fannie and Freddie and this global demand for regulation. And you could assume a very high yield on the underlying loans, even though they weren't going to pay it. And so you created a security, and as long as house prices kept on going up and the defaults were postponed, the subordination clauses um, triggered cash disbursements. So by the end of this period of cash profits for all, unlike the previous debacle that we had, nobody's cash constrained. Everybody's making profits, and everybody's got plenty of cash to keep the model going. So what happened was they just kept on producing um, from 2004 through 2007, Everything went into CDOs, CDO squared, and other uh, securities. The, the hedge fund money doubled again. It quadrupled. It doubled in the first half of the decade. It doubled again. And again, most of this is state and local uh, money. So there's virtually no smart money ahead of the AAAs. They're funding 95%, 98%. Fannie and Freddie say, well, we're only taking the you know, zero-risk piece. Well, it wasn't the zero-risk piece. It was most of the funding. They might not have known it. Um, now, so the last question really is, and then we'll wrap up shorting the subprime market. Um, why didn't somebody stop it? You know, just the shorts just sell. And it was technically feasible. Um, you could do this with credit default swaps. This got a lot of negative attention, but it seems to me that um, it almost worked perfectly. The, the CDS contracts were written mostly by two big to fail banks uh, and AIG, and it, but AIG, the insurer, didn't write them. A thrift subsidiary regulated by the Treasury. Uh, which was uh, eventually Timothy Geithner's responsibility, was writing the credit default swaps. Um, and, and there was asymmetric capital treatment. That is, uh, the Fed was giving capital relief to the buyers of credit default swaps, which was an appropriate thing to do so long as the sellers of credit default swaps were posting an equal amount of capital that they were getting relief for. I doubt they were because they, never, they don't ever quite work it that way. But I would say this. Supposedly, according to Chairman Bernanke and Secretary Geithner, they paid off 100% of the credit default swaps at par, and they won't lose a dime on their bailout of any of these financial institutions that wrote them, including AIG. So um, I don't see what the problem was. But there was a huge price disconnect because the price that SEC had them booking the value of these assets at was twice what they were worth. That didn't make any difference until somebody had to sell. When Bear Stearns had redemptions in the Bear Stearns-sponsored hedge funds, it was the first time anybody sold, and when they sold, they realized the market price was only half of what they booked them at, and the whole market, of course, crashed. 
So the last question we had is, why weren't the shorts short shortly after this whole bubble started, like in 2002 or 2004? Why couldn't they stop it? There's a lot of people that say, well, it was irrational exuberance. Everybody thought house prices were going up. A, there's absolutely no evidence in my mind that anybody behaved irrationally here, that everybody behaved rationally based on the incentives they were faced. There's no theory that says that's true. And even the leading Nobel Prize winning economist, Kahneman, who um, is a behavioral economist, says, well, even if everybody's irrational, the people who short securities are totally rational. So it doesn't take anybody else to be rational, only the shorts. So why didn't the shorts short? And there's a great book on that uh, by Michael Lewis. It's because they were shorting the government. And uh, as Commissioner Walson pointed out, you can't short the government. We thought we had learned that 20 or 30 years earlier. So um, I thought the funniest line in the uh, FCIC's report was the exonerated Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, as I said, well, the, the yields on their debt didn't go up, which, of course, it shouldn't. The government's backing them. Why should the yields on their debt go up? So uh, this time is different as the title of a, of a book. I'll save you from reading it by adding three words to the title. The point was, for 800 years of financial crises, this time wasn't different. Common uh, Reinhardt and, and Kenneth, and, and Kenneth Rogoff, it's always the same thing. It's always been public fiscal policy. Uh, folly that, that causes financial crisis. And uh, the state and local governments were only a, a minor player because the mezzanine uh, share was, was so low. But um, as I say, uh, the huge unfunded liabilities are all Greek to me, except I'm from California, which is mostly Spanish. California is uh, too big to fail and, and too broke to bail. So that's the same thing that Spain is facing right now. Um, We've already been through all of the problems of having all these off-balance sheet liabilities that don't have any capital, and what happens when the risks just get too great? So the only prescription is to enforce capital requirements. I mean, you've got to have capital to be able to back these risks. Uh, and that's Fannie and Freddie must go. Why? There's no reason to have them if they're going to have market capital requirements. Why have a monopolist? Now, if they had to meet market capital requirements, what's the point? And we all, all know, you know, monopoly isn't supposed to be good. So that's getting a lot of discussion. Uh, Ginny May and the home loan banks. Well, um, Ginny May, of course, didn't fail, but FHA is, I think, deeply underwater now. It's not going anywhere. Once you shift that risk from Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, you're just putting it into another government pot, um, and who knows how they'll bail that out. The home loan banks have, I got one more slide. The home loan banks uh, never failed because they over-collateralized, regulatory arbitrage. That's why when they went into IndyMac, the home loan banks had half the collateral and there was nothing left for the, for the FDIC. And so it's all an over-collateralization game. So um, this is my last slide. Securitization should go because it's inherently undercapitalized. Under and I would say that um, the capital requirements should be transparent. Covered bonds have somewhat more transparent capital requirements, but they tend to have over-collateralization just like I did in my uh, first bond deal because the investors don't trust the regulators to, the quality of the capital or the quality of the loans um, that an institution is providing, so they want excess collateral. And, you know, that's, you, you got to have capital someplace. Okay, I think we'll wrap that up. Take questions. You can send the hate mail to my email. <laughs> Thank you, Kevin. Um